0: let's recall the scripture passage that has already been read for us by joy and let's recall the larger story that embraces that scripture passage i'm going to read a few more words from the very beginning of that passage when they had gone ashore we read they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread and jesus said to them bring some of the fish that you have just caught so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and though they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they fished all night. They fished all night without success. The risen Jesus, who is yet to ascend to the Father in this passage, calls out to them from the shoreline, and he suggests they might try something else. They might try casting their net off the other side of the boat. Now, if that seems superstitious to you, remember something about fishermen. How many of you are fishermen? One or two. Fishermen, as these one or two know, are known to be superstitious. So to them, it's likely plausible what Jesus has just asked. But it isn't that tip or the presence of a shadowy figure over on the shoreline that clues the disciples to the identity of the Lord. It is, as with all of the miracles, the occurrence of something totally unexplainable, something totally unpredictable. And in this case, it is the sudden enclosure of 153 large fish. I was teaching this passage to a group of folks at the Baptist Church we served up in Greensboro some years ago, and trying to explain that commentators and scholars of various stripes have tried to understand why 153, is that a symbolic figure? Could it stand for something? Can we understand what it might represent? Whereupon a fisherman raised his hand in the rear of the room and understanding that you are Quakers and that you prefer simplicity in this very uh, difficult world we share, you'll appreciate this. He said, well, this ought to be very simple. We see 153 fish mentioned because there were 153 fish. How do we know? Because fishermen always count their fish. And if it's an impressive number, they report that number to other people. 153, Peter, the fisherman, hastily dons his fisherman's cloak. He dives into the water, and he swims hard toward the shore, toward the one he has come not only to know as the Lord of life, but also the Savior of life. Coming ashore, Peter finds his Lord doing something we don't otherwise see him doing in the Gospels, and you observe what that is, Jesus is cooking. Jesus has organized a makeshift barbecue grill, and he's already got fish charcoaling on it. He invites the arriving disciples to add fish from their enormous catch, and before long, they're all enjoying breakfast. And apparently, there wasn't much talking. I mean, what would remain to be said after everything that they had experienced after all that had happened But not in his resurrected life, no more than before, is Jesus going to permit a teachable moment to pass by. As disciples lie back on the bank and luxuriate in the first rays of morning sun that lap over the high hills of Bashan, Jesus begins with his well-known third-degree interrogation of Peter, Simon, son of John. Do you love me, Simon, son of John? Do you love me, Simon? Do you love me? commentators agree that Jesus was seeking a recommitment, a threefold recommitment from the one who had three times previously denied him. But we're not going to focus our attention upon that just now, for along came this cryptic statement. It was introduced by the familiar and authoritative in the Greek, lego, lego, who verily, verily, I say unto you, Peter, When you were a young man, you would do just as you did a short while ago in the fishing boat. You'd get up, you'd put on your clothes, you'd jump out, you'd go wherever you wanted to go. But time is coming. When you will lift up your arms, you will be dressed by another person, and you will be taken where you don't necessarily want to go. Time was, that is, that you designed and carried out life pretty much to your own satisfaction. But the day is coming when you will answer to somebody else's design. Someday you won't have it your way anymore. How be it, added Jesus, never mind any of that. Rather, fall in line and come along with me. Now, John explains in this passage that Jesus was using figurative language to signify the crucifixion death that Peter would one day experience. Peter seems dumbfounded, as anybody would, responds awkwardly, as often he did. He turns and sees his colleague John, who always seems to be close by, as if hanging on every word that falls from the lips of Jesus. Then Peter says... So what about him, Lord? What's to become of him? You say I'm coming to a time when I fall under the domination of others, a time when I will have no say-so and become powerless and lose the upper hand. I suppose something like that is also going to happen to John. There's something about us Christians that needs to believe that we're all in the same boat. And they were all going to the same place. Peter didn't want to be the only disciple who would face what Jesus had predicted, and that was powerlessness. Powerlessness, followed by a hard death. But Jesus, as he generally did, says something unexpected. Oh yes, he says about John. If I want him to tarry, If I choose that he should go on living and flourishing, then what's that to you? You're Peter, not John. Your part is to be Peter and to follow me. In essence, what's it to you, Jesus asks? Well, what it was to Peter was basic fairness. We're all servants of Christ. And while we're sure good things are coming, there is in the meantime a cross to be born. If some of us should suffer, then all of us should suffer, right? The problem here is that fairness, as we usually unpack that notion, is a human abstraction. Fairness, conventionally understood, actually isn't in the province of God. Among the first things we mortals know in life is what's fair and what isn't. I have little grandsons and granddaughters, and I've observed from my own children in times past that little children may not understand a lot about their lives, but they can always tell you what's fair and what isn't. I once heard one of my former denomination's leaders, that's the Baptist denomination, say that some particular practice, and I forget what it was, ought to be admitted to our churches not because there is any clear direction in the Bible, but because, quote, God is fair, unquote. And that caused me to roll the idea of fairness over and over in my head. The Bible says that God is good and merciful and righteous and just, but nowhere does it suggest that God is fair, at least not as you and I understand fairness. Just might be the closest thing to what we're talking about, but the biblical word for just doesn't imply equitability or even handedness. Rather, it means right, right according to God's will for his created order. And that is why there are so many things in the Bible that, let's be honest, just don't seem fair to us, even though they're associated with the action of God. We see circumstances and conditions in our own lives with our eyes, but we do not really see. God sees. We know some things with our logical minds, but we do not really know. God knows. All that we can finally know is that God is good and merciful and righteous, and just, and he will ultimately bring all things together according to his perfect will. God is not an erring God. We read in the book of Ecclesiastes, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. And that explains why Jesus looks Peter in the eye and says in so many words, Why do you wonder if life going forward is going to be fair? As my disciple, fairness isn't your agenda. Followership is. We read that impetuous Peter did indeed fall in behind Jesus. He went on to found the first church in Jerusalem and eventually came to die too soon hung upside down, we are told, on a cruel cross near Rome, thus fulfilling Jesus' forecast. On the other hand, it is surmised that thoughtful John lived to a ripe old age, endured and survived and made the most of his exile on the Isle of Patmos, thereafter laboring against heresies and apparently dying a natural death in Ephesus. But, So much for Peter and so much for John. How do you and I imagine we, you and I, will come to our own end? It Seems superfluous to say, but Jesus was right, wasn't he? Maybe we've been a little like Peter. Could be we have called the shots, pretty much, so far. Doubtful, but maybe we have. Even if so, time is coming when we aren't going to be doing that. We will lift up our hands, and someone else will dress us and take us where we don't want to go. Maybe that will be bearable, or maybe not so much. God knows, and I believe God ultimately decides I ministered in Greensboro for more than 25 years. I got acquainted with a lot of wonderful people, many of them choice servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I personally conducted more than 600 of their funerals. In my pastoral care capacity, I observed that some died easy, others not. Surely all had their crosses to bear, but... The crosses weren't of equal weight or severity. In their painful suffering, many of these saints must have thought of counterparts who were on their feet and doing fine and looked up and asked with Peter, Lord, what about him? What about her? The answer for us must always be the same. Whatever God wills, what is that to us? Whether in sickness or in health, in age or in youth, in wealth or in poverty, in good fortune or in misfortune, our vocation remains ever the same. We are called to tag along after the one we call Lord. Now you can do that in a quiet study with John in Ephesus. Or you can do it upside down with Peter on a cross outside Rome. You can do it on your feet, immersed in the work of the Lord's church. You can even do it on your back in the intensive care unit, looking up, giving witness to others that your redemption draweth nigh. Life most likely is and certainly becomes unpredictable, as if guided by an unseen hand. It is or becomes impossible to work life out so as always to have your say about everything. But again from Ecclesiastes we read, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to men of understanding nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And even Frank Sinatra, who swaggered his way through life singing, I Did It My Way, ended up on his deathbed with words to the contrary. I'm losing, he said. The value of coming to a time in your life when you're losing, and you know it, is to realize that you never from the first were ever in charge, in control of things. The single choice our God gives us is the choice he gave Philip and Nathaniel and Andrew and Peter, hard by the gentle waves of Galilee. Come with me, come with me, come with me, or not. That choice, and it is the choice of discipleship, is ours to make. And for all the rest, we leave it in the Lord's hands. For he is eminently trustworthy. Our hope in him is never misplaced. And it was elsewhere that Jesus taught, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And may it be so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.